Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. Uh, We are going to jump in here in a moment um, and continue our series. We began the series in the book of Acts in September, and in February, here we are, and we're on um, chapter 5. Okay, so there's three things that I need to, three things that I need to tell you uh, before we jump in. Uh, number one, first thing is this. First thing is from here on out in the sermon series, and I, I, I'm not kidding, I, I'm serious, things are going to move very quickly, okay? Things are going to move very, very quickly. We've been methodical up until this point in some ways because we've had to establish a little bit of foundation that we're going to jump off of throughout the, throughout the book. And so uh, we've been a bit meth- methodical. We've been talking about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Why? So that every time it comes to that in the book of Acts, you now know, and I don't have the time to explain that whole thing, okay? Um, secondly, uh, good news, bad news, depending how you look at it, I am going to, as much as possible for the rest of the series now, preach verse for verse, okay? And you'll see it today, just kind of. And part of that is because... Um, well, I kind of want to, okay? So I might change my mind. Now, I'm doing it because, uh, you'll, you'll see, I'm doing it partly because as we now go through the rest of the book, you need to know and get not a bigger, big picture of what's going on, but also just kind of the, the ins and outs. And I'll tell you how this will play kind of for you. It means that sometimes you're not going to sit there and be like, whoa, that is exactly what I needed to hear today because that happened Wednesday night. Nah. You know, like our culture, our generation, like we've been raised so that when we come, it's like, can you, the reality is scripture, growth, Christian life, it's more like taking vitamins versus taking that thing that you need to, do you know what I mean? So it's kind of realizing what God has to say about him, about us, may not reply at that moment, but you realize how important, critical it is for the larger Christian life. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, you know. I'm going to get up here on Sundays and go, open your Bibles. Let's go, okay? Let's go. Acts chapter 5. Here we go. Come on. Come on, come on. As a result, the people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Throughout the sermon series in the book of Acts, I've had folks who came up to me and have had conversations like this. Do you believe that God can heal today? Do you believe that God can physically heal emotionally? And my answer is absolutely. Not because some convoluted theological, you know, biblical, you know, charismatic, gifts are for today, all that stuff. I simply believe it because, check this out, book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus pointed to the reality that by his resurrection, he began this ultimate restoration project of all of God's creation. And that sometimes includes our bodies. You tracking? Okay? So if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why we talk about this so often, and that his resurrection wasn't just a, whoa, that was very cool, but his resurrection was to be a pointer to the fact that God was restoring all of creation and will one day completely restore and heal all of creation. This earth, created earth. The resurrection, pointer, the healings. And so when people were healed, they looked at it and said, God indeed rose from the dead via his son. And that he is at work today. Now, if you're somebody who's sick and so is wrestling with illness and you've been praying so on and so forth, what we have to, I guess, wrestle with in some ways is this. Why is it that some people get healed and some people don't? And again, the resurrection scripture. By his resurrection, Jesus said, I'm beginning to usher in the kingdom of God, but it has not yet fully come. And we live in what scholars call the overlap of the ages. We're in the overlap of the ages. Sometimes we experience healing, experience powerful work of God where there's restoration and so on and so forth. But at the same time, there's a process in which we still see death, decay, sickness, suffering, illness, so on and so forth. Okay? Make sense? It is absolutely a lie, the devil, that says, if you don't experience healing, it's because you're not strong enough of a Christian, you don't have enough faith, and you need to pray more. Okay? As followers, what we're, Christ, what we're called to do is to live in the open level. They just, and actually, interesting enough, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fact that God doesn't sometimes deliver us from jails. God sometimes doesn't deliver us and heal us completely. God sometimes, huh? 
allow suffering. Hello? We don't like that word in America. Hardships. Hello, Christians. Difficulties. Unanswered prayer. What do we do with that? Well, we're going to see. Verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now, guys, we've seen throughout the sermon series this battle, this, this the confrontation between the Sadducees and the ruling high priests and the apostles, and it gets pretty bad, pretty heated. Matter of fact, the primary persecution and suffering of the apostles and the followers of Jesus come because of the high priests and the religious leaders. Why? This verse right here actually gives context to the entire book as we constantly see this battle. Uh, and furthermore, Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen being the martyr, first martyr in the Christian movement. And he gets killed actually because of what we'll see right here. What's going on here? Well, the word zeal. They were filled with jealousy. The word jealousy literally is zeal. And zeal for a first century Jew had a very different connotation than zeal for you and I. When we think of the word zeal in our culture, what do we think of? Someone who's enthusiastic, someone who's lots of... Zeal for a first century Jew was used specifically in context of zeal for the honor of God. And it was expressed in their zeal for the law. The law, the Moses, law of Moses... It's our life. It's our zeal. Zeal also for the purity of the temple. This is where Stephen comes in. Zeal for the purity of the temple. Zeal furthermore for the land even. Which is the reason why they constantly ran into opposition so on and so forth with the, Ro- with the Romans. This land was God's land promised to our ancestors. So zeal. Also zeal for the purity of their race. Zeal. Zeal for the honor of God. So what's happening is they're looking at the Christian movement as a threat to everything they held sacred. Okay? So zeal. But there's another reason. There's most scholars. Part of it also was this. The Christian movement wasn't just a threat to the way of living for them, but it was also a threat to the religious power brokers who were the Pharisees, high priests, and the Sadducees. They got their power because they were entrusted by God, they said, to be the guardians of the law, the guardians of the temple. So anybody and everybody who came along, like the Christians, and said, because of the work of Christ, the temple and the law are now null and void. He's fulfilled them. Well, to them, that wasn't just, you're messing with their tradition. To them, that was a direct threat to their influence, to their authority, to their power. You know, this isn't all new, is it? History tells us that those who are in power at the expense of others don't go away quietly when their power is threatened. They do some bad things. That's what's going on. You get the scene? Okay? So the religious leaders, high priests, so on and so forth, it's a threat to their power, their influence, their authority that they feel like is rightfully theirs. And therefore, they wanted to stamp out this movement called Christianity. Verse 18. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. To which... If you're like me, you don't go, well, that's, that's wonderful. That's, that's amazing of God. That's like, you know, many times throughout the book of Acts, he's intervened on behalf of, I read that and I go, that's annoying. Anybody relate? That's annoying because how often does that happen to you? How often does that happen to me? How often does that happen that we find ourselves in a situation of jam, a hardship, difficulty, suffering, suffering, persecution, whatever you want to call it, and all of a sudden, miraculously, God comes and intervenes in deliverance. How often does that happen to you? Not often, does it? You know what the truth is, though? Can I just tell you something? The truth is, as we look at the book of Acts, this actually is more of a rare occasion than the normal. The reality is that the Apostles and disciples didn't always experience miraculous deliverance, nor were they free, nor were they healed, so on and so forth. If anything, Paul gives a laundry list of how God didn't come through. God didn't bring about deliverance. God let him suffer. God let him stay in his hardship. Shipwrecks, stoning, beatings. Matter of fact, this text right here, uh, guess how it ends. Guess what happens to these guys, right? Uh, Verse 40. So they called the apostles in as religious leaders, and we'll get to that, and had them flogged. 
In case you don't wonder what the, what flogging, what the flogging is, flogging is, they called it 40 lashes minus one. And it's where you were whipped until your backs were lacerated and you're bleeding. When you look at the response, and they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoiced Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. These guys leave backs lacerated, bleeding, rejoicing, and literally it says, because of the honor of being dishonored, because of the name of Jesus. Now, can I, I wonder if anybody, is, it, is this counterintuitive to you? Does this like not make sense to anybody in here? Oh, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that says, oh, so they responded with joy with their backs lacerated because they were flogged. Well, that makes perfect sense because, you know, that's me too. Whatever. Is this counterintuitive to anybody? Come on. Your back's not lacerated. You're just going through a little bitty thing. You're going, where are you? It's not fair. It's unjust. That's you. That's me. These guys are rejoicing. We don't rejoice when we get flogged. We don't rejoice when our backs are lacerated. We don't rejoice when we suffer. We don't rejoice when we're in a jam and we don't see a way out. We don't rejoice when God doesn't answer our prayers. Yeah, they're rejoicing. Let me show you actually another kind of picture. This happens later. We'll get to Acts chapter 16. This is Apostle Paul and Silas. It says after they had been severely flogged. Apparently lots of people were getting flogged these days. And they were thrown into prison. And lots of people were being thrown into prison. All that to say, you and I don't have it that bad. Come on. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Come on! Hymns to God? And the other prisoners were listening to them? Real quick, real quick. How you and I respond in the midst of hardship and difficulties is one of the clearest ways that the unbelieving world actually thinks that God is real. How you and I respond when we don't get healed, when God doesn't answer our prayer, when we get flogged, when we get thrown in the prison, how we respond in the midst of circumstances that the world will look at and go, just give it up. Deny your God. Why even be a Christian? God isn't fair. There is no justice. How you and I respond is one of the clearest ways that the world will actually believe there is a God, really. You know where this comes from? Paul's life is so submitted to the will of God that the result is deep, abiding, unshakable joy. His life is so submitted to God that his response is deep, unshakable, abiding joy. (laughs) Where after he gets flogged, his feet are in stocks, and he says to the jailer, go get me a hymn. I'm going to sing tonight. <laughs> this is as relevant as it gets. Can we be real honest about that? Because this is what levels us. This is what paralyzes us. Because the reality is, well, we're going to do two things today. We're going to stay in the book of Acts, but then we're going to also hit an Old Testament text, okay? Is that Okay. Old Testament text, a very familiar story, okay? So put your hand right here in Acts 5, and then turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. Book of Daniel chapter 3. 
Daniel chapter 3. When we come to the book of Daniel chapter 3, here's the background, brief context. A bunch of Israelites have been exiled to the nation of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has set up a golden statue, and he has essentially made a law in the land that says, when the horn sounds, I need everybody in the land to bow down to this idol. Bow down to this God. Bow down to the statue. If you don't, the consequences are you're going to be thrown into the what? Fire. Fiery furnace. Remember this story? Sunday school? Okay. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three young men who say, we're not going to bow down to that God, bow down to the idol. It doesn't matter what you do to us. And look what they say. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. If you misunderstand that verse, you're going to look at that and go, you know, if they just had more faith. I mean, that's kind of contradictory. Why say God will deliver us? And if you believe that, why say, but he might not? And if you don't think he might, if you don't think he will or he might not, then how can you be so sure that God will? Choose one or the other. This is incredibly important in our day and age today where Christians have sort of been drinking this unhealthy, unbiblical perspective of God's will and how he works in our lives. What do I mean? What I find oftentimes is when a Christian says, I know God's going to answer this. I know God's going to come through. I believe it. Oftentimes, it's not faith in God that they're after, but it's actually faith in their agenda. And the thing that they want to see God do. That's really the source of their faith. You're following me. You're following me. You know, the Christians go around and go, you got to believe it. you got to believe that God will do this thing. And you can't have any doubts at all. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not that we believe God and have confidence in God. But our belief in confidence is what we want to see God do for us. And you go, I don't believe that. How do you respond then when God doesn't come through for you? Do you see what I'm getting at? How does a person respond if God doesn't come heal them? Do they still rejoice? Are they still faithful? How do you respond when your prayers don't get answered? You know, I need to believe in that faith that God will answer this. What happens when you don't? Ultimately, our motives and our hearts are exposed that maybe it wasn't faith in God. Faith in what we would like to see happen. Paul and Silas, the apostles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the list of character goes on. People in scripture who didn't experience deliverance, healing, who, who God didn't come through in a miraculous way, and yet with profound, deep faith. Why? Here's what the young men are essentially saying. Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to that God. We believe that God will deliver us, and we believe he will. But that's not the reason why we defy you. We don't defy you because we think God's going to answer our prayers. We defy you because our God is God. Oh, man. Oh, man. I just know that God's going to come through and I'm going to find Mr. and Mrs. Perfect. God is able. God will. But if not, hmm? Oh, man. If you don't have faith like that, when God doesn't seem to come through, should I move on or you want me to dwell on this a little bit? Okay, let me just, let me just hit this and go, okay? I know I always give that examples of, you know, singles, you know, because, well, um, there's singles right here sitting, four of them, and, and I... <laughs> Oh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Anyway, um, I have people come into my office and they say, you know what, I'm thinking about chucking the whole Christianity thing. It just isn't working out for me. And what they're essentially saying is, Jesus isn't working out for you. Let me just say this. 
if you seek to meet Jesus so that you can get your needs met, you will neither meet him nor get your needs met. Let me say it again. If you seek to meet Jesus to get your needs met, you will neither meet him nor get your needs met. Come to Jesus not because he's fulfilling, although he is. Come to Jesus because he's true. He is who he says he is. How do you know if your desire is to honor God and not be about your own agenda? You will be just as confident praying. Say it with me. God is able. God will. But if Okay. Thank you, Jesus, for this sermon. And we just want to. Yeah, you wish it was over right now. We're not done yet, folks. <laughs> Verse 20. We're going to cover like 15 verses. You ready? <laughs> Go stand in the temple. See, hey, by the way. So you all see, this is what the rest of the sermon is going to be like. You enjoying this? Verse by verse, just kind of inside. You know, okay, here we go. So is this relevant to anybody? I told you. you Okay, so go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And I love this. I talked about this last week. Listen, listen. Christianity in in, in, in Acts chapter 9 will be referred to as the way. And it's not until chapter 11 it's called Christianity. And it's so powerful that it's referred to as the life and the way. Because if there's one thing that Christianity is, it is not a set of doctrinal beliefs that you agree to. Christianity is at the end of the day about how you, what? Live. How you live. Angels don't even know what to call them. He says, go tell them about, you know, we have life. Verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, sort of the supreme court of Judaism, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail cell securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found nobody inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. You guys, check this out. These guys have some cojones. Major cojones. Apparently that means in Spanish. Is that right, Michael? Okay. It just means that they're really brave, right? Really bold. Okay. <laughs> they're standing, listen, they're standing, remember the battle confrontation? They're standing in the center of religious power on the steps, the most visible, the most public place. And they're doing the very thing that people said, if you do this again, we're going to kill you. Okay? So imagine that picture. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. You know, I share this morning. This is a part of the challenge of preaching like this, verse by verse, is this, okay? I, there's an entire sermon right here on civil disobedience. We must disobey God rather than men. And godly men like Martin Luther King Jr. and other men have pointed to this text, this verse, as one of the foundational anchors for the practice of civil disobedience. But we don't have time for that today. We're going to come back to that maybe some other time. Okay? Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I love this. They are saying, if you keep talking about this, we're going to kill you. So they're, so they're, they're brought in and they say, stop doing it. Why do you keep doing it? They're asking them questions. What do the disciples do? They talk about Jesus again. No, no, tell us why you keep doing it. We're telling you right now, Jesus Christ, who you... Here's the reason why I mention this, okay? 
The balance in the Christian life, and we talked about this last week a little bit, the balance in the Christian life is not only do you live your life in such a way that people can see the life of Christ and the Christian faith, but the Bible says over and over and over again that there is a need to declare, to proclaim, and to tell. Can I just call for a bit of a balance? It's very popular and cool these days in younger churches to say, preach the gospel! And then use words if they're necessary. And what they're saying is, it's about your life. It's how you live. And I understand it's a reaction to all you do is talk and don't live it. However, however, let me just say, we cannot ignore this mandate for Christ throughout the book of Acts to talk about it, to tell it, to proclaim it, to let people know. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. One more comment and then I'll move on. Please don't use that whole preach the gospel if necessary and use word necessary or use words necessary. Don't use that as an excuse for the fact that you're afraid. You hear what I'm saying? Deal with your fear, people. Let's deal with our fears and don't use that as an excuse. Had a great conversation this past week with a little uh, nurse in our church, and she was telling me as much as she's bold about declaring this, there was one person in her in her little hospital who, who, who she has a hard time just being bold about her faith. We all have that person, don't we? Whether they're too smart or they're really turned off by Christianity. So here's, don't let reaction against what we perceive, and rightfully so, as the dysfunction of the Christian faith that just talk. Be a source of healing somebody's perception of that by doing it humbly. Gently, confidently. You're not going to be able to get away with this through the book of Acts, like constant telling, telling, telling. Okay. What are they telling? What are they talking about? Oh, I am so excited about this. I'm sorry. Okay, everybody, I'm so excited about this. What are they telling? What are they? Can you tell them inside? What are they telling? What are they telling? The twin message is, is you killed him, God raised him. You rejected him. And despised him, God exalted him and honored him. But Peter here, the apostle Peter, uses a powerful Greek word, a powerful Greek word that just brings new light to the work of Christ, okay? Can we do a little Bible study here this morning? Does anybody have a Greek Bible? Oh, Nathan, and what was your name again? Okay, I want Nathan, I'm going to pick on you, okay? What is that word? Nathan, what is that word? Prince, translated. What is it in Greek? What's the use with these guys bringing their Greek Bibles if they're not even following along? What is the use? What is the use? Verse 31. What is the Greek word for prince? Greek word for prince is the Greek word archegos, okay? The root word is archegos. Archegos means what? Brilliant. There's smart people in our church. The Greek word archegos is used four times in the New Testament. First time it's used in Acts chapter 3. Peter's sermon. He says, Jesus is our archegos of salvation. English translation we use, author. Acts chapter 5. God exalted him as prince. Archegos. Two other times. Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is the captain. Archegos. Last, Hebrews chapter 12, he is the pioneer, archegos of our faith. Author, prince, pioneer, captain. Why is it used in so many different ways in English and the Greek? Because it's a really, really rich word in Greek. In Greek mythology, though, by the way, I'm not as smart. I, I get this from other people like scholars in my mind. What's so funny about that? <laughs> you all know that. Come on now. In Greek mythology, it was used to refer to, get this, Hercules. The word was used prominently to refer to Greek heroes of Greek mythology. And literally, the word was used to refer to a hero. So what Peter's literally saying here is in that context, Jesus is our hero. He's our champion. Um, you notice our culture is obsessed with heroes or the heroic. 
for crying out loud, we have a television show called Heroes. And what's the premise? Average day, normal, average day people with supernatural powers are going to save the world. The cheerleader, save the world, you know. We're like obsessed with the heroic. Why? Listen to this. I'm going to get to that. Why? There is something about our culture that is hungry for this kind of heroic figure. How many times do you have to be in a movie theater, right? Where it comes to that scene, that scene. Well, that guy is standing there at the seashore, right? And he looks to everybody and he says, go! You guys all go! Get in the ships and go! And he says, I'm going to stay. I'll fight them off. I'll die to the end, right? And what happens, you know? All of us are like, go! No, you go too! Don't stay! No, we don't do that. Women do that. Guys are like, you're darn right I'm going to stay, right? Like, yes! That's me, right? Right? There's a hunger in our culture for that. What's he doing? What's that hero doing? You know what it is? Ultimately, heroic is a great exchange. Last of the Mohicans, one of my favorite movies. It got me to Daniel Day-Lewis. What a phenomenal actor, right? In that movie, remember British, act, British officer Duncan and Clara? The heroine, right? They're caught by the Indians. What do the Indians say? Indians say, look at them and says, we're going to burn her and offer to our gods. You can go free. And what does Duncan say? He looks at the Indians and he says, me for her. She's condemned. He's immune. But when he looks at them and her and says, me for her, her condemnation comes to him. His immunity goes to her. He is hung and burned. She goes free. And Christian or not, you look at that scene and something within us goes, huh? What do you think happened on the cross? Why is Jesus our hero? Great exchange on the cross is the ultimate declaration of Jesus saying, Me! For you. Me. For you. And when he says that, Our condemnation is transferred to him. His righteousness is transferred to us. We go free. He dies on our behalf. Substitution. Exchange. Jesus is exalted as our hero. Why? Because the heroic thing, as we all know, is when God himself in our place took our place, dying for the debt and the sins of our sins and the sins of the entire world. And on the cross, he carries, he carries our debts and takes our place. And our condemnation, our sins, is transferred to him. And his righteousness and his perfect life is transferred to us. And Christian or not, you might be somebody here going, you know what? Why is it that storyline? Why is it that thing in our culture resonates so deep with me? I'm going to tell you why. Because when God created us, do you know that God created all of us to be heroic? Do you know that when God created man, God didn't create us to be mediocre. God didn't create us to be mundane. God didn't create us to be average and cowards. God created us to be heroic. God created you and me to walk and not faint. God created us to run and not be weary. But sin has broken us down. But something about heroic actions stirs our hearts, Christian or not, because you and I were created to be heroic. Is this resonating with anybody? Okay, let me put it this way. If you're not a Christian here, the first step to being heroic is to admit that you're not. Is to admit that you're a coward. The first act of an heroic, the Bible says, is to, is to admit that you're not heroic, you're not that strong, you're not that bold, you're not that courageous. Is to admit that you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not moral enough, you're not religious, spiritual enough. The first act. Can you do that today? I wonder if I'm talking. Can you do that today? Can you come to God today and say, God, I'm not what I want to be. 
And the Bible says first step to doing that is to believe this. Believe Great exchange, heroic. Christ came, dies on our behalf for our sins, for our condemnation. And the life that he lived, the perfect life, then becomes transferred to us. A great exchange occurs so that when God sees us in Christ, he sees us as if we had lived the life that Christ lived. Sees us as he sees Christ. At the end of the service today, I might give you an opportunity Perhaps to, to, to do that, to do that, to be able to come before God today and say, today is the day, God. I've been running from you. I've been hiding. I don't want to be a coward anymore. I don't want to be a coward anymore. Let's go on. Look at the rest of this passage. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin in order that the men be put outside for a while. Then he addressed them and said, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too, though, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. So they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching, proclaiming, telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The big chunk of what I want to talk to you about today is a topic that's very, very difficult to talk about. It's the topic of suffering. One of the most difficult things for me as a pastor is to counsel people who are going through suffering. And there's two sort of broad categories, just for me practically in my pastoral care. The kind that I have a really hard time with, and I need to go back to Scripture over and over and over again to make sure that I'm doing sort of the, 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 the right thing by what God would have me do, is when I try and counsel people who are suffering because not of anything they've done. Suffering that seems unjust, suffering that seems undeserved, suffering that seems pointless, suffering that comes to innocent people, suffering that comes to righteous people, suffering that comes to faithful people. Anybody else struggle with this? The kind of suffering that, that, that we all wrestle with, honestly, if you and I were honest, we all wrestle with about God, character, God, all that stuff, okay? And, and that's what I want to talk about today. Because this is a constant theme in the book of Acts. But then there's a second kind of suffering. I just want to rest real quickly and then move on, okay? It's the kind of suffering that comes as a result of our idols dying. Somebody comes and they say, my life feels meaningless. Why? This relationship gave me meaning. It's gone. Your life is going to feel meaningless. That job... That's where I found my identity. That's where I found my security. That, that was it for me. Christian or not, I, I just, that was my security. You get fired. You lose your job. The thing that you base your security identity on, it's gone. You're going to feel insecure. You tracking? You tracking? The very thing that we place our hopes, our life, our security, our identity on, and all of us have it. We all have it. Yes, it's supposed to be God, but we all have something else. And a lot of times when that thing, that thing that we've looked to, that idol dies or is dying, our hearts feel like something in us is dying because the very thing that we look to is dying. And a lot of times I see Christians shaking their fists at God going, why are you? And I feel like God's going, why are you angry? Why are you mad? The very thing that you look to for your entire being is gone. 
I wonder if I'm talking to anybody today. You're suffering and you have a hard time as a Christian. And if you're really honest, if you're really, really honest, be as gentle as possible. If you're really honest, you looked at it and said, it's undeserved, is it? It's unfair, is it? Or is it because of the thing that you have? You hear what I'm saying? God says, repent of that and turn towards me. Stop seeking your identity, significance, worth, and meaning in that. It can't give you the things you're looking for. Turn towards me. Suffering. Idols dying. And then there's this, though. There's a suffering of the apostles. There's a persecution. There's the mom who delivers a stillborn baby. There's a family member who loses their loved one through cancer. And the list goes on and on. And the question that I get asked a lot from Christians and not is, how can a loving God allow suffering to continue? There I said it. How can a loving God allow, continu- uh, allow suffering to continue? And I'm going to be... Uh, uh, the Bible does not give exhaustive, definitive answers to the question of why. Let me say something right there. If you're somebody who says, that's not good enough for me then. It's not good enough for me. If I can't know why there is unnecessary and just suffering in the world that I don't want to hear the rest of it, I want to be just gentle and yet firm if I can say this, okay? If I can say this. Can, can, you, can you see with me how it would be the height of arrogance to be able to say, because it doesn't make any sense to me, There can't be a good reason. Hold on. What I hear you saying is, I have the ability to plumb the depths of how this universe runs. And I plumb the depths of it. And I see no good reason. (laughs) Does this make sense? Is that fair? Just a little bit of humility that says... I'm just a mere mortal creature. I don't know the depths of the universe. Okay, why is this important? Because the Bible doesn't give the answer to why, but it gives the answer to what and with. What do I mean? (sighs) Daniel passage. Remember the Daniel passage? Let's go revisit that, okay? We're going to read Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 24. Um, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He says, look, but I see four. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, perfect governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other god except their own god. For no other god can save in this way. Everybody, everybody, here in this text is the ultimate question of suffering and the answer to it. What do I mean? You notice that Nebuchadnezzar, this is a familiar story for some of you, so you're going to have to really pay attention. Nebuchadnezzar notices two things that's shocking to him. Number one, he sees that they're not harmed by the fire. But that's not the point of the story. You shouldn't go out there. Well, see, that's what happens when you believe in God. You don't get harmed by the fire. Because you and I know life doesn't, it's not how it works, is it? The other thing that they noticed, he notices that's striking is that they're not just three men in the fire. There are what? Four. Who's the fourth figure? Who's the fourth figure? He says, even in, he's a pagan God, doesn't even, a pagan God, pagan king, doesn't even know God. But the figure looked like it was such a supernatural, enormous being that he says, it looks like a son of the gods. Question. Who is he? Question. Why is he going there? Question. Why does he stay in there? Answer number one. Who is he? All Old Testament scholars agree that 
angel of the Lord figure, Exodus chapter 3, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 happens. The angel of the Lord figure is none other than Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate son of God. Question number two, why does he go in there? Answer, well, to comfort them, to protect them, to watch over them. If that's what you really believe, if that's what you really believe, then when you and I go through furnaces of our lives, when you and I go through some hard, suffering hardships, only thing we could hope for is an emotional lift. There, there. Jesus, it's hot in here. I know, but there, there. It's okay. <laughs> is that encouraging to people? No. Third question. Why does he not come out and stay? Jesus will come around 2,000 years later. He's preaching a sermon to a bunch of religious leaders. And he says to those who deny him, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they will be thrown into the, here's the word, fiery furnace. You can look it up, Matthew 13, verse 42. The fiery furnace throughout Scripture is the wrath of God. Justice of God. Pause. As soon as I say that, about half of you, I'm going to lose. Because the thought of an angry God, well, yeah, that's why I'm not a Christian. The thought of an angry God, a wrathful God, oh, no, no, no. That, stop, pause, I'm going to bring you back. Because you've been conditioned, I've been conditioned by American Christianity. You ready? You ready? You back? You back? Okay, watch this. Would you want to worship a God who doesn't get angry and wrathful towards men in Thailand who inject steroids and hormones to 10, 11-year-old boys so they can be sold into prostitution? Would you want to worship a God who looks at that and says, well, you know, I don't get angry. No! There's something in you, something in me that rises up, Christian or not, that says, that's wrong. They need to pay. That's not right. Second question. Would you want to worship a God who looks at the Holocaust and just kind of mildly winks at it because, you know, well, some people are just kind of bad and things happen. Would you want to worship and love a God who doesn't get wrathful and angry at slaughter of millions of innocent children? The answer? You guys. Miroslav Volf is one of my favorite theologians. One of my favorite theologians. He's a Croatian theologian. He's written a number of books. And we in America, in Christians in America, need to read more of them. Because this is what he says. He says that thesis, that people don't like to think of God as a God of vengeance and nonviolence, that could only be developed in a culture and context where you've never experienced atrocity or injustice in your life. He says, I pastor in an environment where I have people who've seen their brothers and fathers and their throats slit. In front of them. He says, I pastor a group of people who've seen their daughters and their mothers raped in front of them. And he says, what's going to stop these men and these family members from picking up the sword, picking up the gun and saying, we're going to retaliate, which results in endless cycle of retaliation, violence, death. Retaliation, violence, death. Retaliation, violence, death. You know what he says? He says, the only thing that can stop them is a belief that there's a God of vengeance who will make sure that someday things will be made Let me read you his quote, because some of you snickered and sneered when I was saying this. This gets me emotional, downright emotional. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. In other words, he's saying, in order to teach people not to be violent, they need to know that God is a God of vengeance and wrath. It'll be unpopular with many Christians in America. Oh, he says the West, but I say America. But to the person inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagine that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone where I deliver this chapter as paper. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. My thesis, don't retaliate. <laughs> 
Why? The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today. Secretly nourished by belief that God refuses to take the sword. Secretly nourished by a popular belief. God is not an angry God. He's not a wrathful God. Oh no. If you do this soon, you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will die like all other pleasant uh, captivities of the liberal mind. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence that God would not be worthy of our worship. Listen. Do you know what Jesus does? For those of us that cringe at the wrath for God of justice, Jesus on the cross walked into the ultimate fiery furnace. Why? Walking into the ultimate fire furnace all the punishment that evil and wickedness has served, all the punishment that sin of idolatry, sin of adultery, all the sin, all the sins, all the punishment, all the things that we deserve, all the things that this world deserves, Jesus goes into the fire furnace and takes it. Why? So that he could end evil and he could end suffering without ending us. Do you understand that? He walks into the fiery furnace and receives a punishment for the sins of the world, all the injustice, all the things. Why? So that one day he could end evil. He could end suffering once and for all without ending us with it. The question Why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? The Bible may not give an exhaustive answer, but here's what the Bible does answer. It does tell you that God is not indifferent. It does tell you that God is loving. Why? He loves so much and he is so interested that he comes himself and pays the debt himself and dies himself. understand that the cross of Jesus Christ you guys no it may not answer the question God why does it the cross of Jesus Christ says to those of you God do you care he says do I care God do you see are you indifferent he says do I see church do you hear me Do you hear me? There are people weeping in the service right now up front. Why? I'll tell you why. I know her story. I'll tell you why. Because for somebody who's struggling with the sense of God, where's the justice? Where is the healing? Where's those things? And I don't have answers. The the healing balm is to know that God cared so much that there would one day be no more suffering and evil. That instead of sitting on the comforts of heaven and saying, I'm going to just, he himself becomes man and dies to end it. I'm going to say it again because it's important. Without ending us. I'll tell you how this gives hope. We're almost done. Hang in there. First, the cross gives us hope about the past. These are quick, so you've got to pay attention. I'll move on. Listen, listen. We talk about the gospel so much here. We talk about the gospel so much. Here's the reason why I talk about the gospel so much. Because, because we're just like the disciples. Remember the disciples, they saw a blind man, and they turned to Jesus and say, whose sin is it, right? Is it his or his, his parents, right? And Jesus says, neither, you fools. But that's us. Do you know what we do? We approach God on the base of religion. And religion says, I'm good. I obey the law. I obey the rules. I do everything that you tell me to God. And so I have you in my debt, okay? So that means I have you in my debt because I'm a good person. So suffering when it comes, we look at that and go, what the heck? What the heck? What the heck? What is this? What is this? I've been good. I've obeyed you. 
Suffering for a religious person who says, I've been good, I've done everything you asked me to, and this, you will either get angry at God and saying, oh, I don't deserve this, what kind of a God are you? Or you're going to get angry at yourself and go, I'm not good enough, I need to do more. What did I not do right? And we preach this garbage in church. <laughs> we tell people who are suffering that it's because they're not praying enough. I mean, I mean, I almost swore. It's okay, I said cojones today, so I guess that's like, we're number two. If you are sitting here today, I'm I'm serious, if you are sitting here today and you know somebody who's going through suffering and they're struggling because they think they've been bad and they think they're being punished by God, you need to tell them, Jesus Christ paid for our punishment once and for all. There is no second punishment coming. When God said, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he meant it. It was not, it is finished, parentheses, unless you've been really, really bad. (laughs) Amen? When he said it's finished, he meant it is finished. There is no more punishment coming your way to a child of God. It also eliminates self-pity. Why? Because our first reaction is, I don't deserve this. And yet on the cross, we see the Son of God, the perfect man who ever lived, who is completely undeserving, suffering for us. Why? So that you and I, in mercy, will never, ever get what we really deserve. Never. Number two, the cross gives us hope about the present. This morning, Jenny's parents were here. Her parents her dad is like 67 years old, okay? They're visiting for, for, for holiday weekend. We're taking him out tonight. You know, we do kind of a double date Valentine's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, 11 years ago, her father was discovered that he had colon cancer. It's a cancer the size of a tennis ball in his colon. A healthy man. I mean, he is, he's a beast. He's a healthy, healthy guy, you know? Every time I see him, he's like, let's go play racquetball. I'm like, you're 67 years old. You know, and then he whoops my butt. You know, one of these guys, right? So he was shocked to everybody. Shocked to everybody. Um, Jenny was in med school at that time, and I was full-time school doing ministry. And Jenny was like, I got, I got, obviously she's like, I got to go. I got to go up. And it was really ironic because she's a physician, many of you guys know. Both of her brothers are doctors. All three kids are doctors, right? And her father comes out with colon cancer, right? So Jenny goes up. It's on the train. She goes up. My, my wife is a strong woman. She's a strong lady, which is one thing I love about. Ladies, I don't care what you think. Men are, men are drawn to strong, centered, grounded women. Is that true? Guys, is that true? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nathan, that wasn't a call for you to hook up, bro. What was that? It was like, yeah, me, right here. What's that? <laughs> a little too enthusiastic over there. You should come join these guys right over here. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, okay, so here's what I did. Jenny went up. You know, he was, he was real into emergency surgery, all this stuff. And Jenny is just, she's a mess on the phone. And uh, I just decided, I'm like, I got to go. I got to go up and be with her. I got to go up and be with her, you know. Tons of things to do, papers. All that. I'm like, I got to go. So I didn't tell her, though. I just told one of her brothers. And I drove five hours up to East Lansing, Michigan, where she's from. Got stopped a couple times going up, speeding tickets, you know. <laughs> one of the cops was a big jerk, man. The other one was like, you know, my girlfriend, her father, he's like, oh, man, go, go, just slow down. The other dude, the, the, I'm serious. And the other dude was like, so? I was like, anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling this need to swear this morning. Mike, I got to finish soon. I'm going to say something. This is going to be a podcast. So you know what I did? I drove, I drove, you guys. I drove up, I drove up to East Lansing, Michigan. I drove up, and it's like 8 o'clock at night, right? It's, and Jenny's eating dinner with her mom and one of her brothers, and she's eating dinner there. And, of course, I walked to the door. She's completely, like, just shocked, you know? She wasn't expecting it at all. The two and a half days I was up there, I hardly said a word to her. You know what I did? I just was present. I just held her. I just wept with her. Do you know why? 
Because when people go through something like that, the last thing they need is Job's friends to give intellectual answers. The thing that they need is somebody that loves them, somebody that cares them, who just sits with them and says, I'm here. Do you know what the incarnation, the doctrine of incarnation means? This creator God sees the world in absolute utter mess, suffering, evil. And he says, I'm not going to choose this and and just kind of, he says, I'm going to take on flesh and bone and I'm going to enter their world, their mess, their garbage. And by the way, you can call me Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. I'm just going to be present. You could have hope for the You don't think God is with you? Are you kidding me? He made the ultimate trip for you. Lastly, I'm with this. The cross gives us hope for the future. Anybody a fan of Lord of the Rings? Not the movie, I'm talking about the book. At the very end, Gandalf is alive. And Sam, one of the heroes, is overwhelmed with excitement. But seeing Gandalf, he asks this question. Do you remember? Which is, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Untrue. Why? Do you know what the promise of the Christian faith says? Listen, you need to be very, when people go through tragedy and suffering, sometimes it's enough that they have someone who loves them to be present. But do you know what? People need to know that the death wasn't meaningless. Do you notice that? That's why when people get killed or experience injustice, their families will work like crazy to make laws and policies. Why? Because there's thing in us that says, this is not meaningless. This has to result in something good. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says the death of Christ, the ultimate tragedy, there is something that came out of it. What is it? The beginning of the restoration of all of creation. And I say, I say, that restoration and not consolation, because here's the thing, we've grown up in church that says when we die, we just kind of flutter in spirit and, you know, we're in heaven with angels and heart, blah, blah, blah. If that's our hope, tell that to somebody who gave birth to a stillborn baby. Tell that to somebody who lost a loved one through cancer. And they won't be encouraged. What's the encouragement? So I die and I get basically a cosmic consolation from God. There, there. That's okay. That's not what the Bible promises. Read N.T. Wright. You know what he says? The ending is not consolation there, there. The end of all things is restoration. Do you know what that means? That means that mom that lost a stillborn baby and said, Oh, the life I could have had. The Bible says at the end, you will get the life. You want it. To the one who lost a loved one through cancer <laughs> and said, oh, the life that I could have had. The Bible doesn't say, well, you know, that was really sad, tragic there, there. The Bible says at the end, God says, you'll get the life you've always wanted. The promise for us at the end as Christians is not immaterial world of consolation for suffering we've experienced. But the end is that our joy and the glory in that joy will be that much greater for having lost it in the first place. (laughs) Adeline, come over here. I want to pray for you. Some of you know, I'm sorry, you mind if I do this? I I just, I can't, I can't just sit here and just ignore you. (laughs) Adeline is somebody who's been a part of our church family. Share with the church what physical ailments you've had to wrestle with. Uh, well, my daughter's handicapped um, because as a young baby, she was abused by her father. And um, she has cerebral palsy. She can't walk. She goes through therapy and everything. And it's hard, it's hard to watch because it physically does hurt her. Um, so to watch her grow up and be different from everybody and try to fit in is one thing. And then... I have Parkinson's and breast cancer on top of all of that. And you're crying because why? Mostly for my daughter. I'm wondering if some of you guys would come up and pray for Annalyn. Come on, you don't have to know her. She's your family for crying out loud. 
God, it's moments like this when uh, we come together as a church family. Father, I pray for your precious daughter and for her daughter. And God, I thank you that we can have the assurance that you care and that you know and that you're not indifferent. I thank you, God, that our assurance and our faith can be anchored in this truth, God, that you care so much, God, that you did the ultimate thing to end and to heal once and for all. And we pray for your daughter. We pray for your daughter. And God, we lay our hands on her and we pray for healing. We pray for healing for the Parkinson's. We pray for healing from breast cancer. And we also pray for her daughter, God. We pray, believing Jesus, that when you rose from the dead, there was a loud declaration for all of creation that God will one day heal all things. And that that is where our faith can be anchored every day of our lives. I pray that that faith would overwhelm your precious daughter, Annalyn. Oh God, all we can do is simply weep, simply cry, simply hold, and pray. We pray, we pray, pray. In the name of the one, name of the one who's given us the answer. Jesus, amen and amen. As you leave this place today, church, leave as people of hope. For he has risen. He has risen. And that is good news. Amen? Go forth. Enjoy. We'll see you back here next week.